Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Psalm 122. That's where we'll be today, Psalm 122. So we continue in a series that we are calling Why Church? Why, why gather on Sunday morning for worship together? Um, I want to tell you a story, but I have to be very vague because everybody I'm talking about is local, okay? So you'll get the idea, all right? <laughs> But uh, another pastor was telling me um, uh, was telling me that um, that somebody had gone to a church. Uh, another pastor had gone to a local church for church service, and and he said that he said that it was just uh, it was just dead. It was just dead. This is what he said. He said it was the nearest nothing of a church service that he had ever been to. Now I don't know what he meant by that, but the the gist of what he was saying was the church was dead. There was a paramedic that was being interviewed on the news station, and the, the anchor said, T- tell me about an unusual call you've been on recently. He said, well, just the other day, we went down to the big white church down on Main Street, and uh, we got a, a call from a very concerned usher who, who had seen a man. He, this man had, had collapsed over in the pew, and he didn't seem to have a pulse, didn't seem to be breathing, he seemed to be dead, and so... We went, we went down there. Well, the, the reporter interrupted him and said, well, what, what was so unusual? He said, well, we ended up and carried out 23 people by mistake before we actually found the man who was dead. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a dead church, right? Vance Havner said, most churches start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. This is a dead church. Church should not be dull. Church should not be dead. You know why? Because we come together and we study a word that is living and active. And this word tells us about a Lord who died and who rose again and is alive forevermore. And if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, he has quickened you from spiritual death. He has brought you from death to life, and you are alive. And so death should not characterize church because we're studying the living word. And he is living and active, and we should be living and active. When we think about church, why church, why come together for church, we're kind of answering this question. Now, last week... We, we looked at the idea of, we just defined our terms. We talked about what church is. It's not a building. It's not an organization. The church is the, the assembly of God's people. It is a group of God's people who are committed to Christ and who are committed to each other. And so when we talk about church, that's what we're talking about. And for the next several weeks, we want to answer the question, why church? The titles to the rest of these messages are answers to why church. Today, we're thinking about it in terms of relationship to God. Why, church? To exalt the Lord. The reason we should come together, the reason we gather on Sunday morning is to exalt the Lord. When we think about this, the church's first priority is to reach, is to worship Christ 
and to lift him up. That's, the, our, our, that's our primary objective. When you think about what he's given us in the Great Commission, you say, well, David, I thought that we are to evangelize the world. And that is a job that we have been given, right? But it's not our primary objective, right? It's not primary. And, and, and a lot of smart guys have, have talked about this and talk about in relation to God, the church's primary function is to worship. Let me read what these guys have, have, um, have said. They'll say it much better than I. These are quotable things. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology book says, Worship in the church is not merely a preparation for something else. It is in itself fulfilling the major purpose of the church with reference to its Lord. We, do we come here on Sunday morning and does it help us prepare and get ready for the coming week? And does it help us to, to give us a boost for that? Yes, it does. But that's not why we come. Right? It's not just preparation for something else. It is the thing that we're doing. It's lifting him up. Eugene Peterson, the, uh, the, the guy who did the, 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 trans, uh, the, the message, the paraphrase, the message, says, Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and we attend to God. Isn't that so true? Like we tend to get very, um, we tend to get very sidetracked and preoccupied with the things that we have going on. And we forget about him. John MacArthur, worship is the primary essential. Service is a wonderful and necessary corollary to it. And so the idea is that as a church, are we to minister to other people? Yes. But that is really like a secondary, that's like a, a complementary thing to our primary essential, which is to worship God. My favorite on this is John Piper. Missions is not the ultimate priority of the church. Reaching the world, missions, ministering, that's not the primary, ultimate priority of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate and not man. Missions is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. This is the idea that when we come into God's house on Sunday morning, one of the reasons that we do that, especially in relation to God, is to exalt him, to lift him up, because he has saved us. And this idea, this gathering together on Sunday morning for corporate worship, right? I say that because we can worship individually, right? I've worshipped, I've worshipped going down the road in my car. I've worshipped out in the woods. I've worshipped in my study and been all by myself. You can worship that way. But the Bible calls us to corporate worship, to gather together and to exalt the Lord. Psalm 122 is a psalm that is about just that. Now, as we read this, before we read it, let me give you, a, I'm going to explain it as we walk through it. But before we read it, let me just say to you that when we read this, you're not going to see a lot of things. You're, you're going to struggle to find things about church in this. You're going to read, the first time we read it, you're going to hear a lot of things about Jerusalem. And you're going to be saying, what in, what in the world has this got to do with going to church? We'll get there. But let's read it together and see how Psalm 122 can speak to us. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. 
there thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Lord, we pray that today as we look to this psalm that you would open our hearts, that you would help us to see what you would have to say from these verses. But Lord, we pray that above all, you would be lifted up in our minds and in our hearts, and we would be obedient as you speak to us today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's look. Let's just look together at the passage. And what I want to do is I want to start with this. I want you to, you know, usually I walk through the passage of Scripture. And I'll do that in just a minute. I'll start in verse 1. But point 1 doesn't start with verse 1. Point 1 starts with the little superscription that you probably have in your Bible above the text. Mine reads, a song of a sense of David. Maybe you have something like that in your Bible. If you were reading from the screens, that's not there. But if you have a Bible in front of you, you most likely have this heading over the psalm. That's where we want to start today. That points us to the first point today. We have a directive to worship. We have a directive and a command to come into the house of God together and to worship. Let me explain what this psalm is about and what that little superscription at the top Means there is some debate about what this um, about this, and I'll, I'll get into that in just a second. But let me let me explain what's being said here. When it says it is a song of ascents, what does that mean, David? The people of Israel, the Jews, were asked to go to Jerusalem three times a year. If you were able-bodied, if you were able to go, people would leave their homes and they would go to the city of Jerusalem where the tabernacle was, where David brought the tabernacle there and where the temple would be. They were called to go to the house of the Lord three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, three times a year. They were asked to go to Jerusalem to where the temple, the tabernacle was, right? Now, we know that the the, the Lord can be worshipped anywhere, right? We'll see this over and over again today. The Lord can be worshipped anywhere, right? But, but in their mind, very closely, the presence of the Lord was associated with the temple. That was the house of God. That was the place where they went to worship. And so on these occasions where they would go to Jerusalem, where they would be called to travel, Jerusalem sat on like a hill, like on a hillside. And so while most of the outlying areas were, were lower in elevation than Jerusalem, these people would travel and they would literally go up to Jerusalem. They would go up to the temple. They would ascend this hill and they would go to this house of worship. So the idea of a song of ascents, this is the idea. This song would have been sung by those who were going to the temple to worship. On these pilgrimages to go three times a year to the house of the Lord, they would be singing this song. Now, if you just look at the writer of it, if you look at what the, the one who wrote this, it seems to be one who has at, who's at home. He's not at the temple. He's been at the temple for worship, and now he's reminiscing back to what it was like to travel to Jerusalem 
and go to the temple. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And he thought about what it was like to, for his feet to stand in Jerusalem and for him to come into the city and to see the temple on that temple mount and the excitement about, about worship. That's what he's recalling, right? And people would sing this song as they journeyed to the temple. Um, like when David was there, the temple wasn't standing, right? Because David didn't build the temple. He brought the ark to Jerusalem and the tabernacle, that tent church, was there. Then his son Solomon built the temple. People would go there to worship. Now, here's where the debate comes. Some people say that this is not a psalm of, da uh, of David, that, that, that David did not write this psalm. Others say that he did. So when you think about it being a song of David, this is, I believe it to be that, um, and I'll tell you why. That there is a structure to, the, to these songs that you find. If you just look at the psalms around this one, you'll see that most of them have this label, a song of ascent, right? And there's 15 psalms together right here that have this title given to it, right? Where the Lord had commanded them to go to the temple and worship, and they're going. They had a directive to go, and they're going. And they would sing these songs as they went to follow that command, right, to follow his leadership, and of these 15 songs that are gathered here, there is a very discernible order. I don't have time and you don't want me to go into the details. But David wrote four, Solomon wrote one, the others are anonymous. And there's a particular order to that. And if you follow that order, David is the author of this particular, um, of this particular song of ascent. Now some people argue kind of against that, and they say, well, there's this, that's not the way that this is ordered. The book of Psalms is ordered where the first, it's in five books, and, and, and the first part, the first and second part of Psalms happen like um, uh, during the activity of the, of the fall, and then you have this that comes right after the fall, and then you have this long after. So they would say that David was dead after the fall of Babylon and all of that, so these, this last section of Psalms, all these Psalms were written much later, Right? That's where they get that. But you also have David and Solomon as attributing authors in some of these psalms. And so no matter what you believe about who wrote this psalm, it was most certainly after the time of David and after the time of, of the Babylonian captivity, people sang this song on the way to worship because God had commanded them to. Not to sing the song, but had commanded them to go to worship, Right? And they would like rally themselves. I found a great description of that from this guy, Alfred Edersheim. Listen to what he says about, he's describing the pilgrimage. And he says, the journey was always to be made slowly. For this pilgrimage was to be a joy and a privilege, not a toil and a weariness. In the morning, as the golden sunlight tipped the mountains of Moab, the leader would summon the ranks of the procession in the words of Jeremiah 31. Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion, and unto Jehovah our God. To which the people replied, as they formed and moved onward, in the appropriate language of Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. This was a, this was a song that they would sing back and forth. It was a reminder of where they were going and where their focus was. That they were not going to Jerusalem as sightseers. They were not tourists. They were worshipers, and they had been directed and commanded to worship, and so they were keeping their focus in the right spot. Listen, I'm not Jewish, neither are you, right? 
We're not called to make a pilgrimage to these places. We don't follow the Old Testament law. We are followers of Christ. But even as followers of Christ, we have a directive and a command to be in the house of the Lord. In Hebrews 10, in 23 through 25, listen to these words. The writer to the Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let's stick with Jesus, how about it? For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Here it is. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect to meet together. As the King James says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You come together for worship. Can you worship alone, individually? Yes. But don't neglect this time because corporate worship is important. And as we looked last week, it's been important that God's people assemble and focus on him from, from the beginning. From Old Testament times all the way right up on through, you see this assembly of God's people coming together to lift his name up, to work together, and to worship him. This is imperative for us. The truth is, is that many people do not, it is the habit of many to not gather for worship, right? This is a growing trend where people will say, look, David, I, I left the church. I didn't leave Jesus, but I left the church. And what I've found, David, is my worship is so much more meaningful when I'm on my own because on Sunday morning, I sleep late and that's restorative for the body. And then I spend time with my family, and that's what he's called me to do. And I find, David, that when I'm not at church, these private moments that I have by myself, God is, such, is much more approachable when I, when I worship on my own. Since I've quit church, it's, it's so much better. I have a theory about that. If you leave David Brown alone, and you just let him do his own thing, the God that I'm going to worship is going to end up looking a lot like David Brown. And I'll get really comfortable with that God. I'll get really comfortable with him. He'll be so approachable because he's just like me. He focuses on the things I focus on. He loves the things that I love. He wants me to do the things that, that I want to do. And that God is a God that I like to serve that God would also be an idol because he's not the God of Scripture. You see, my tendency is that I want to veer off another direction, but when I come to the house of the Lord, when I hear someone stand and speak from God's Word, when I hear message, you, you need to understand, I listen to preaching, not just my own, right? Like, I listen to preaching because I need someone to say to me, I need to hear from someone else, I need to hear God's Word in an unadulterated way, in an unbiased way, that's not the God that I would serve, it's the God of Scripture. You see what I'm saying? We need that. But many people forsake that, and they do not follow this directive to be in the house of the Lord. The average Southern Baptist church has 233 members and has 70 people in attendance on Sunday morning. That's the average 
If you look at our membership role, when you, if you take that and you thumb through it, there are hundreds and hundreds of names on there, right? And only a fraction that are here on Sunday morning. Right? Now, some of those people may be in worship somewhere else, right? They may be in worship somewhere else. But the truth is, many have just forsaken the assembling of ourselves together. We discredit and discount how important it is to be in the house of the Lord. And I have a good reason why I believe. I believe that irregularity to corporate worship does affect our spiritual walk with the Lord. But we just don't see it at first. See, irregularity in any part of our life gives us, like, concern, right? Has anybody had a coal pack go out on their car? Your car ever start missing? You're driving down the road, and then there's just this... Oh, my way. Will your car drive like that? Yeah, it will. But if, if your car hits one time and then doesn't hit the next, it's noticeable if you're riding in the car. I have a digital watch on, so it loses all its effectiveness. But imagine your watch ticked once. Then it didn't. Oh, and then it ticked twice. And then it didn't. Then it ticked another time. Then it didn't tick twice. If I look at my watch the middle of the afternoon, is my watch going to be right? If I take my boys to school every other day, you're right. They probably will. (laughs) They probably will love me, but the school will give me a call. Right? What if my heart beat one time? And then it missed a couple. And then it beat, and then it didn't. My doctor would have an issue with this irregular heartbeat of mine, right? Because irregularity in any part of our life will cause problems. But when it comes to church attendance, we do it really frequently. We have irregularity, and we think, it's not a big deal. I'll I'll be there next week. I'll catch it up. Eventually, we need to get back in church. See, the idea there is, is we don't notice initially it doesn't have the same shock value as your heart missing a beat every other time, right? And so because it doesn't have that same initial shock value in our life, we say it's not a big deal. But it does affect us. That's why God has given us a directive to be in his house. It wasn't just that these people went to worship because they were commanded either, because by the time you leave the superscription and you get to verse 1, we already are told that this is not to be about the commands. We do not go to the house of... I mean, should we go to the house of the Lord because we have a directive to worship? Yes. But you know why we should go to the house of the Lord to worship? Because we have a delight in worship. By the time you get to verse 1... You're already at the second point, that we have a delight to worship. We don't primarily come because we've been commanded to come. We come because we are glad to go into the house of the Lord. This particular word, glad, the Hebrew is samak, and it's an interesting word because of what it means. Like when we say glad, a person can... Maybe something like this comes to mind, right? But gladness in this particular word, samak, samak is, is 
an, an emotion, a, a feeling of, of gladness and happiness. It sometimes, comes, it sometimes comes on spontaneously, and it is accompanied with an outburst of emotion. I watched a girl, a video of a, of a guy proposing to a girl at a sporting event this week. And she, once, he, once she finally realized what he was asking, and she went ballistic. He was doing this. He was very happy. That's not a thing that I do. That's not how I react to anything. <laughs> you have it on video. <laughs> we'll never have it again. But that, that's what Samak is. It's this expression Right? Like you could see a change in her. She's enjoying the game, but then this is a whole different level of enjoyment. Right? This is a gladness she was not expecting. It's this exuberation. And so what you get the writer saying here is, I was glad. It, it caused me to get giddy when I was going to the house of the Lord. I was excited to do it. There was delightment in it. Right? When... when David is writing this, when you think about those that are, are making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship, they were, it was at great expense that they were going. There were obstacles that they would face. And yet they did this, they did this tiresome journey even, with gladness in their hearts. Pulpit commentary says, we can see the procession starting. We see the beaming eyes and the happy faces. We hear the music of gladness. Which, with which the pilgrims beguile the tediousness of the journey. This is a, a difficult or even a dangerous journey, yet they made this journey with gladness, not just because they had been commanded, but because they were glad to be in the house of the Lord. Then when you get to verse 2, it's this idea that our feet have been standing within your gates, even the nearness to the house of the Lord excited him. He was reminiscent of what it was like to even approach the house of the Lord. The thing about it is this morning, a good question for us when we come to this psalm is, are we glad when they say to us, it's time to go to the house of the Lord? Does that bring us any delight? Well, we better go. We don't have anything else going on, so I guess we better go this Sunday. If we don't go, David will send me a text or something and I'll feel guilty. <laughs> Guess we better go. We better go because people ask why we're there and then what we say, well, we just decided to sleep in Sunday morning. Guess we better go. Whatever, right? Like, is there a gladness when we come into the house of the Lord? See, the truth is, is that none of us have to make a real tedious journey to get here, right? Maybe from the far reaches of Rocky Face. But, you know, the, that, that's about as far as it gets, right? And then we start, then we start thinking to ourselves, like, if, if the, if the journey is not very tedious, we know that it's not. We know that we come here with relative ease, and yet there's been times when our enthusiasm is less than what it should be. We're not delighted to be in the house of the Lord. But when I thought about that this week, and I thought about the fact that it's not... You know what's startling or convicting to me? Whether I'm in the mood to worship or not, he's always worthy of it. Always. He is always exactly who he is. Perfect, righteous, holy, 
good. He is always that. The Bible tells us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of turning with him. That is who he is all the time. So if I don't make it a point to come and worship him, that has to do with me and not him because he's worthy all the time. If I come and my heart is at this substandard level of delight, that's me and not him because he is always worthy and he never changes, right? It may be in my perspective. It may be in my attitude. It may be in the week that I've had or in the, 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 the fact that I have wandered away from him. But if I come and my enthusiasm is less than, it's not to do with him because he's the same as he's always been, on the throne, high and lifted up. If we come and we're not glad to be in the house of the Lord, the question should be, why do we not see him as he is? What's going on in our heart with our perspective to where we don't see him as one to be lifted up? And I believe that when you find what the psalmist is saying here is, is that he's, his, his delight is not just being in the house of the Lord. You see, the idea is he delights in the Lord. And so he has a delight to be in the house of the Lord, right? So we said before, you can worship the Lord anywhere, and the Lord is present everywhere. We say that the Lord is omnipresent, that he's present everywhere. So he is present in the woods and in my office and in my car or wherever I'm at, right? But he seems to be especially present in his house, doesn't he? We have a directive to worship, and we should have a delight in worship, but I want you to see thirdly in this, I want you to see a description of our worship. Look at verses 3 through 5, that second little break in the psalm. When we read through this, you can you just kind of think to yourself like this is a lot about Jerusalem, right? Do you understand that for the the one who who in that culture in their mind there was no if you lived in Nazareth, if you lived in Capernaum, the house of the Lord was in Jerusalem, right? So the same way that we talk about, say, like a place like Wall Street or the Vegas Strip, we're talking about a location, but we know in our minds what we're talking about when we, when we reference those locations, right? Because they're famous for something, right? In the same way, a person who was commenting or, or uh, reminiscing about Jerusalem, it's not the city. As a worshiper, they're thinking about the house of God. They equated this journey to Jerusalem with worship. Jerusalem was a place of worship because that's where the house of God was, right? And so what you find in this passage is, is in the, if you look at it in the context of the psalm, it's a, it's a, the psalm writer is reminiscing about his time at worship. And I think that when you look at verses 3 through 5, you see some things that should describe our worship, some things that should characterize the church in terms of unity and strength and, and order that you find within these verses. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 3, for instance. I think verse 3 says something to us about the fact that when we come together for worship, we should come together in unity. You see how it talks about the fact that the like he's remembering the city and how the city seems to be built together. You see that phrase, Jerusalem, built as a city, that is bound firmly together. I want you to think for just a minute about what would have been a difference between a town where many of these people were coming from, a village, and the city. 
I'll tell you a difference that I notice when I go to the city, right? Like, I live in a town. And in my town, here's a house, and here's a house, and here's a house. You know what I'm talking about? And there tends to be yard in between. When you go to the city, do you know what you get? Ain't a lot of yard. It's house and house and house and house. And those houses seem to be built together. They're right beside each other. They, they even share a wall. Some of them share a wall with the city walls. This is like, it's not these individual units. It's, it's one unit. It's a unit that is bound firmly together. Warren Wiersbe, just as the stones of the walls and the houses were bound firmly together, so the people were bound together in the worship of the Lord and their respect for the throne. When we come together for worship, it should be done in a unified way where all of our focus is in one spot. I've given you this before, but, but um, I want to give it to you again because I think it's important. All of the focus of everything is directed to this place. And the focus is not on David Brown because other people than David Brown could stand here, right? What's being lifted up? It's God in his word that's being lifted up. I, I, I love and I've, I've told the people, I've, I've, um, I've even complimented them on it. Like a, a great church, if you ever have the opportunity to go into it, is First Baptist Fort Oglethorpe. If you ever have the opportunity to go into First Baptist Fort Oglethorpe, it's, it's a round building, right? And, and I've told Jason, I'm, I'm uh, good friends with their pastor, and I've told Jason before, I love the way that church is constructed because when you get inside it, every seat, everything is focused, and the pulpit is like right there in the middle. The way it's designed is very unique in that way. It's all right there in the center because the, the word of God, this is what we're elevating, is God in his word, and we're unified in that. The point that all of those eyes, the point that all of our focus should be on him and his word, we should be unified in that together. And listen, if you have been in a church that is not unified, you know that worship is very difficult in a place when people are not in unity. And listen, you talk about pastor appreciation, I don't care how many lunches you throw or how many gifts you give, I'm going to tell you right now, being a church that's just agreeable with each other, thank you. Thank you. Appreciated. We already have that unity. Did you know that we don't have to come here and try to muster up or try to find that unity as believers in Christ? We already have it. Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear all the ones? One. We've all been brought. We all have the, the same call on our life. We were all moved by the same spirit. We have one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God that's lifted up. We have that unity. We just have to maintain it. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. When he was praying that prayer to his father, he said, I do not ask for these only. He means these 12 disciples that are around me right now. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's me and you. That they may all be one. 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. A church that is not in unity is a horrible witness to a world that needs to know that we serve one Christ. We don't serve the color that the walls are painted, right? We don't serve the kind of music that we sing. We serve the Lord. And everything else, small potatoes. Who cares? Because he's what we're focused on in unity. We should be unified, but look at like verse 4. Also within this description of worship, it's also unified, but it's this idea that the word of the Lord should be shared. Here's where I'm getting this. The tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. When they came to worship here, they were obeying the command of the Lord to come and worship. They were doing what was decreed in the law. If you have a King James Version, it says that this phrase is unto the testimony of Israel. And that word testimony is very closely associated with the law, the the commands that were given to Moses. In fact, within the temple was the Ark of the, that was where the Ark of the Covenant, this box was that was kind of a representative presence of the Lord. And, And within the box, within the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets. And so the Ark of the Covenant was sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony because it held the law of Moses. And so that word testimony, decreed, it's this idea of obeying the commands of the Lord. They were obeying by coming to worship, right? And so one of the things that should happen when we come together for worship is that we should look to the law. This is a place where God's word is given, and for them in worship, The word of the Lord, the law of Moses, would have been read in the worship service, right? In the same way, when we come together for worship, the word of God should be central in what we're doing. We come together in unity and we listen to the word of the Lord. Because remember, if we... Even if we study this word on our own, we tend to make this word say what we want it to. That's why we must come together. That's why like iron, sharpening iron, we come together and we, we learn together from God's word. And it is the standard, not your opinion or mine. The word of God is lifted up. And then finally, you get this idea that because it is the word of the Lord, we obey it. In verse 5, it talks about thrones of judgment and, and this idea of thrones. The temple was located in Jerusalem, which was a royal city. And sometimes, you know, the, the king would come out. There was a throne where the king would come out and would administer justice, would hear cases among, uh, among people in the city, right? In the same way, kind of what we're looking at, what we're thinking about is, is that we come together in unity We lift this up as the standard, and through this, God speaks and shows us how we are not like him, and as a result, we submit to him because he's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's the one that's on the throne, right? The idea is is that when we do this, when we work together in unity, looking to his word and submitting to his authority, he's glorified, and if Our actions as individuals glorify him, right? 
So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. If our individual acts glorify him, our corporate worship and, and, and love for him will glorify him too, right? I have one more point. I'm trying to hurry. Let's look at this. Directive to worship, delight in worship, description of worship. But finally, we should have a desire for worship. What is the real desire of worship? In verses 6 through 9, initially, this seems out of place. Play, praying for Jerusalem, what's that got to do with anything? So the peace in Jerusalem, that should be our desire for worship? Mm-mm, you've missed it. Listen, when he prays for Jerusalem and peace in Jerusalem, he's praying for something very specific. Now, it takes a while to get there, so let's try to hurry and get it. Jerusalem, this city of peace. Do you know Jerusalem to be a place of peace? They fight all the time over there. And newsflash, they're going to keep fighting over there until he makes all things new and sets all things right. If you look to Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah 62, Zechariah 2, what, what, what he's praying for, a person who prays for the peace of Jerusalem, what they're praying for is they're praying for the Messiah who will come and who will establish ultimate peace in the hearts of men, yes, and peace on this earth will make all things new and right. The Bible tells us that one day there is going to be a new Jerusalem. All things are going to be made new. And so this prayer is for the prayer for, for the Messiah to come. Now, if you look at it in a practical way, we could read more into it than that. So, for instance, if you look at verses 6, 7, and 8, it's this idea of praying for Jerusalem. May people be secure. May there be peace, right? But look at verse 9. I pray this for the sake of the house of the Lord. Do you see what he's saying? Like, essentially, like, I was delighted when they said, to go to me, let's go to the house of the Lord and worship. I love to go to worship. And, and I, I have a directive to go there, and, and I, want the, I want it to be in unity, and I want it to be submitting to God. I love going to worship there. So I don't want the city to fall to invaders and the temple to be destroyed, because if the house of the Lord is destroyed, this memory that I have that's reminiscent will not be a place to go. That's kind of the, practically the idea of what they're saying, right? But if you play the long game... What they're praying is, bring peace. Peace. Not peace like we think, right? Shalom kind of peace. The Hebrew word we're all very familiar with, right? But it's much deeper than just not conflict. It's the idea of peace, prosperity, well-being. It's this idea of safety and welfare and favor that would come to the city and his people. And what they're praying for, when they're praying for this peace to come to Jerusalem, they're praying that the Lord on the throne would make all things right. We've been doing this um, Bible reading together in, in Exodus, some, some guys and I. And um, one of the descriptions that it gives is talking about this idea of the contrast between the glory of heaven and this sinful world that we live in, right? Right? And if you think about it, these are really two different realms altogether, 
right? In our mind, in, in our experience, they're very separate, right? The glory and the holiness and the righteousness of the Lord, and then this world that's ugly and fallen and where men are sinful. And that's two different things, right? Our world and his seem to be divided and at odds. But if you go back and you look in Scripture, that's not always been the case, is it? In the Garden of Eden, what happened there? Those, those realms were overlapped in this way, right? We had this, this realm of men who had not sinned, had not departed from God's plan, and you had, had this close communion with a holy God, and those things were, were together. But then they made a decision to diverge from God's will. And by, by sinning, by that fall, it threw us apart. It threw this barrier, this wall between us, right? Two different realms. How can sinful man be made right with holy God? How can these two things coexist? But when Jesus says the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, what's he talking about? He's talking about the the conjoining of these two worlds. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so if you were to take, like right now, when you kind of think about things, things are not like this, right? Like we still live, there's, we still live in a sinful, fallen world. But what you see Christ doing at the cross is you begin to see this overlap of these two things. The, the cross of Christ stands in this zone here where there's this overlap, where sinful man... His sins and the price and the penalty for his sin has been paid and atoned for on the cross. And having done so, we can be made right with him. We can live in a relationship with him and we can have access to him. And it's just a taste of what will come when he comes again and makes all things, sets them back to right order, sets them to the way that they should be. The sense that we, that we return to the garden, so to say, right? Where there's this unity with God. There's this communion with God as they experienced. And the truth is, is that if you look at your life and there is no overlap. If you look at your life and, and your life is simply marked by sinfulness and separation from God. I would ask you this morning to come. Surrender to him. If he's calling to you, come. And, and he's given himself on the cross for you. And when the blood of Christ Jesus is applied to your life, there's this conjoining of those two realms. You get a taste of what it is like to be made right with your creator. It is a taste of what is to come. Where all things are going to be made right. And when we come together into the house of the Lord and we lift him on high, do you know what the desire of our heart is? Our desire in worship is for that. Monday through Saturday, we feel this so much, don't we? We feel the conflict between this. We feel, I mean, let's be honest, I mean, you can feel it in the house of the Lord, right? But when we come together and we lift him up, what we're, what we're doing is we're praying for, we're exclaiming, we desire that these two things be made right. Christ, we know we've do, you've done that on the cross, but we look forward to the fact that you're coming again. And when you come again, all things are going to be made right. 
And this dissonance that we feel with our God, no more. I feel it even as a believer, I feel a dissonance between him and me. Do you not? This idea that my flesh does what it wants to do, but, but, but my spirit wants to do this, right? There's this, there's this conflict that we feel. Like Paul describes in Romans 7, there's this conflict between flesh and the spirit. It's because there's not this full overlap of those two realms. We desire it. Worship is to experience his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't want you to misunderstand what we do when we come together for corporate worship. Corporate worship is not us singing and me preaching and you listening. If that's what you think church is, why church? That's not what church is. See, when we come together, it should be us exalting him. It should be all of our eyes unified, lifting him up. It should be me sharing from God's word a message that has been prayerfully considered, where the Spirit has, has opened my eyes, and I'm simply sharing something with you where the Lord should have already spoken to my heart about it. He should, have, he should have worked with me and processed through some of this scripture with me as I'm studying, as I'm reading, as things that he's laid on my heart. I'm just the mailman delivering the message that he has given to me. I should just be taking the scripture and preaching an expository message that simply exposes what's already in the text. It's not my message, it's what's there and we're just exposing it. There should be a difference between your understanding of the text now versus the few seconds after we immediately had that initial reading of it at the beginning of this message because he has opened our eyes and exposed to us what's there. And if he's lifted up and we see him in his holiness and then he takes his word and he, he opens this up to us, it is you not just listening, that's really passive. you being sensitive to the Spirit based on what He has exposed us to in this past hour, how will we respond to His greatness and His glory? How will we yield ourselves to the one who is on the throne? If church is us singing and me preaching and you listening, that is dead as a hammer. But that's, that's worship as... Uh, as an observer, but worship, worship as a participant should never be boring because we're not perfect. We're not God. We're not holy. So when we come and we lift his holiness up and then we read from his word, he should be exposing things in our heart that are not right with him. And we should be sensitive to that and we should be yielded to it and submit to him so that when the time of the invitation comes, we are searching our heart and the Holy Spirit has put his finger on a place or two in our heart where we don't match to the glory of God, where our righteousness is not like his and we must rely on him. We rely on him. We rely on him. And the invitation is this, whether you are a believer in Christ Jesus or whether you have known him for 50 years. If you're here today and he's convicting you about your lostness, whether he's convicting you about your apathy in worship, 
Whatever he's convicting you about, the response should still be the same. Repent and believe on him. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.